Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The results are in from the world's biggest exercise in democracy. Prime Minister Narendra Modi called it a historic mandate for the BJP party. They'll add to their current majority and control around 300 of the 543 parliamentary seats. With us to talk about India's election results is Adam Roberts. He's the author of Superfast Primetime Ultimate Nation, The Relentless Invention of Modern India. Adam was the Economist Southeast Asia correspondent before becoming the Economist's Midwest correspondent. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. Everyone thought the BJP was ahead and was going to win, but it would be by a smaller margin than they had. And instead, they got this big wampum majority that yeah. they beyond what they expected. What happened here? Yeah, this I mean, we should say very clearly, this is a huge result. It's so exceptional for the for any party to get returned to power in India in this way, let alone to increase their majority. So this is beyond the expectations that the BJP and Narendra Modi had a few months ago. And it must go down to the fact that Modi is an extraordinarily strong campaigner. And a lot of things came right for him in the last few months. I think a lot of people don't uh, get the Modi charisma from our end. Yeah. You know, we look at him and and see, well, he's a little old guy, and yeah. I, 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 but he's got it. He definitely has it. I've interviewed him a few times. When you see him at rallies, he gives a good speech. He doesn't literally thump his chest, but he comes close to doing it. The people of India think of him as a real strong man. You know, the populist movement in India is all about Modi, the strong man, and this reinforces the image that he has. Why didn't some of his policy failures hurt him more? Because if you look at pretty much any segment of the population, the business class wasn't that thrilled with his economic no. policies. He came in saying, "I am the economic man," and it wasn't that great. It wasn't. Yeah. It was kind of bad. And and for the poor, demonetization uh, really hurt them. It was not. He had some downright bad policies. But yet people went and voted for him. Yeah, I think it comes down to the fact that although not everything went right, although there's more unemployment than there's probably ever been in India, more people looking for jobs and not enough jobs out there, a lot of people trusted him to do a better job than anyone else. And so they like the idea of a strong India, a new India. His sort of muscular image makes them believe that the good times will be coming. But it's also true that this election was less about the economy and more about other things. And so he pivoted away from talking about development, which was the theme that he really emphasized five years ago. And he talked more about uh, standing up to Pakistan, being muscular, being strong in, in the world. And so he talked less about social economic issues and more about these other things. Now, the strikes in Kashmir and the, the flare-up in Kashmir that just yeah. happened a couple months ago, that seems to be the, the big driver here. That was a big turning point. So if you looked at the state of politics in India at the end of 2018, it was looking wobbly for the BJP. They'd lost some big state elections. There was this worry about the fact they couldn't create a million jobs a month. And people were saying just maybe the BJP is going to be in trouble. And then a terrorist attack in Kashmir killed a lot of Indian soldiers, followed by a very muscular response by the Indian Air Force. They bombed Pakistan. They claimed to have bombed a terrorist camp. That really fired up the nationalist fervor, and that played well into Modi's character as, as, as this strong man. So that really supercharged the, the Modi campaign. It, uh, how much did it supercharge the rhetoric around the campaign, around uh, around Muslim citizens of India? There was a lot. There, was, there were all sorts of crazy 
things going on, yeah. like at a at a Raul Gandhi rally, there were Pakistan flags yeah. uh, kind of uh, chopped into photos and sent around even when the, when they weren't there at all. Right. Uh, there there were some strange things. Going well, there's on. this old animosity between India and Pakistan, so that's that's not entirely new. But the idea that you would call Indian Muslims the same as Pakistanis is essentially calling them traitors and whipping up hatred against a minority of the population that's around 15% of all Indians. This is deeply worrying for the future of India that you bring yourself to power by attacking a minority like this. So the sort of language that's used against Muslim migrants from Bangladesh who were called termites, the idea that the Indians have to be Hindus to be respected as true Indians some of the BJP politicians use this sort of language and therefore threaten the inclusiveness that is so important for India's future. One of the statistics I was looking at was from uh, Uttar Pradesh, and uh, it's a very large population Huge. province, 200 million or something yeah, like bigger that. Bigger than Brazil. And so it's got, but it does have 43 million Muslims in it. That's yeah. a lot of people, and they have absolutely no representation in parliament. Yeah, you have to worry when, if you're a population of 43 million people and you don't feel that anyone in parliament represents you, where will those people go to get their voice? out there? Will they just be intimidated and silenced or will they turn to other means of getting their voice out? Right now, the voice for that minority in India feels rather subdued and rather limited to the south of India. If you're in the north where Uttar Pradesh is or these other big states in the north, the voice of the Muslims is going to be rather quiet now and that's going to make the Hindus all the more empowered to say this is the right approach for winning the next election as well. So I I worry about the state of that uh, secular inclusive India that has been so successful for 70 years. I'm talking with Adam Roberts. He's the author of Superfast Primetime Ultimate Nation, The Relentless Invention of Modern India, and he is the Midwest correspondent for The Economist and was previously in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it's that's such a worrying thing. Uh, can you explain um, how this country that in our mind represented pluralism and democracy and secularism has now adopted this party as its national party that is all about uh, attacking the other. I think part of it is that at least last time in the 2014 election, people said, I'm voting for this party because it's going to modernize India. It's going to make it a strong economic power. Now, even though it didn't deliver on that in this election, there weren't many good alternatives out there who were saying, look, here's a vision for how we'll make India strong again. So I don't think we should say that everyone voting in this election was voting to be Hindu nationalist. But what we have seen is that younger voters, voters in the countryside, the rural voters, those who are exposed to social media, to Facebook especially, have been whipped up into having anger against enemies, especially Pakistan, but Pakistan then becomes code for Muslims. And so the the BJB has been far more skillful at using technology, getting supporters of this group called the RSS, which is a Hindu nationalist group of volunteers with millions of volunteers who go and knock on doors and canvas for the party. They're a much more successfully managed machine. So there's this combination of modern political machinery with a Hindu nationalist cultural side that seems very hard to beat. One of the things I read frequently is that uh, the BJP dominates the media. How does the BJP dominate the media? Well, 
to some extent, like we see in America, there are certain TV stations that are very keen to carry favor with the ruling party. And so there are journalists who self-censor, who are very reluctant to criticize Modi, who would see any criticism of Modi as criticism of India. So to some extent, it's that. But we also see in India that business interests have great influence on how the media works. And since many companies want to have good relations with the BJP, with the government, their media houses are instructed not to be critical of of the government. And then the last element, as we've just mentioned, is the social media. The fact that the BJP is far more slick and far more invested in putting the money needed to control the debate on social media means that they can shape the debate that's being heard. There are many hundreds of millions of people in India who get their information only through Facebook. And the BJP almost entirely dominates the message there. All right, let's turn our attention to the Congress party and the thumping defeat that they got. Yeah. Um, what do you say, where does it go now? I mean, you've had Rahul Gandhi running in a couple, uh, you know, leading the party for a couple elections, and he's um, being rejected. And the the policies that they set out sounded earnest and well, you know, promising. Yeah. If you're a, if you're someone from the lower 20%, you were going to get a basic income. Sure. There were they had ideas, they had um, you know, a, a kind of a an economic pitch that was different. Yeah, if only the election was really about policies and ideas. <laughs> I, I think that in the end, as in other countries as with this democracy, the power of the candidate, the the charisma of the candidate was important as well. And Raul Gandhi, I said this back in 2014, is a dud. He's not a strong candidate. He doesn't know how to campaign. He doesn't have the hunger to win that many others like Narendra Modi have. The fact that Raul Gandhi couldn't hold on to his own constituency, the family seat where for 50 years a member of the Nehru Gandhi family has controlled that seat, he lost his own seat. That's a damning indictment of how bad the Congress party is. They barely failed to improve on last time round. But he will return to Parliament. He won uh, another seat. Yes, uh, the peculiarity of India. You can contest more than one seat. Yeah. Um, so how do you – if that's a message that is sent to the, to the Congress party, can they, can they get rid of Rahul Gandhi? It's so hard. The, the trouble for Congress is they don't know how to unite the party other than around the Nehru Gandhi family. So if there were a decision now to dump Rahul Gandhi, the next decision would be to choose his sister, Priyanka Gandhi, as the next leader. So we're stuck, I think, with Congress going through the motions of having this dynasty controlling the party. And we're seeing that voters don't like it. Voters are not impressed by the idea that one family should rule the party. And Priyanka, for the first time, really campaigned out there in mm. this election. And she's supposed to be more charismatic and uh, interesting than Raul. Yeah. And, I mean, can we chalk up any of this loss to her lack of success, too? I think so. I mean, she is moderately better than Raul, but she she didn't really have an impact this time either. She looks a little like Indira Gandhi. There are some who think back to when Congress and the Gandhi family were really popular, and they say, oh, she looks like a reincarnation almost of this old figure. But so far, she hasn't shown the political skills of her grandmother. Does she have qualities that drag her down? Well, there are said to be weaknesses. There are some who talk about her mental health issues. And most troubling, she has a, a husband in Robert Vadra, a businessman who has a very shady reputation. So the problem for Congress is it's known as a party of corruption. And she is married to a man who is, it is suggested is a very corrupt man. Is there any way to 
edge Congress out as a opposite as the opposition stalwart party at the at this point. And is is there a everyone talks about the regional parties mm. in India? They were seem to seem to be supposed to grow in this election and supposed to do better, yeah. and that wasn't necessarily the case. I think it's going to be very hard. India is more of a continent than a country. It's one point three billion people, hugely diverse, and for any party to be a national party is, a, is an immense success. And the BJP seems to be creating itself as the national party now. The, the problem for Congress is that it's, it's losing its bastions of power. And so it may hold on in bits of the South, bits of the East, but gradually at the ground level, it's lost its ground support. So I think the Congress is, is shriveling and withering away. I'm talking with Adam Roberts. He's the author of Superfast Prime Time Ultimate Nation: The Relentless Invention of Modern India. And coming up in a few minutes, we're going to talk about Australia. They had an election over the weekend where the incumbent won, and it was a complete shock. And we're going to unpack that as well. Um, you know, I wanted to say something more about uh, what happened in the regions because we were hearing in the BBC News that in West Bengal, a place yeah. where the BGP never does well. Um, they did well. Yeah. Why, why, why did they do well in places they never do well? Yes, this is, as, as the BBC said, this is a remarkable change from five years ago. Uh, West Bengal has a particular history. It was communist dominated for many years, which makes it very unusual. Uh, it's also dominated these days by a woman, Mamta Banerjee, who is uh, despised by many in urban West Bengal. So I think the BJP has probably been good at tapping into urban voters, those who feel that West Bengal has been left behind as the rest of India has seen economic growth in the last 20 or 30 years. And so it's another also reflection of the weakness of Congress, that Congress failed to step in in West Bengal and seize this opportunity. They were far too slow to step in and say, we'll be the alternative to Mamta Banerjee. So the BJP have been very clever at building local alliances in new places like West Bengal, but also Karnataka in the south and the far northeast that everyone forgets about, way up near the border with China. The BJP have been eating into the votes there as well. Do, it, it seems like the economic appeal is is the one that still wins there. I think so. If if you're a 20-year-old man and you don't want to work on a field, you're desperate for a job, you love to have a, a white-collar job and maybe work in somewhere that has air conditioning, which is the party that you believe is going to get you somehow into that position? Well, right now, you somehow believe that Narendra Modi is the more likely man to deliver it for you. So in those places, I think that's still the dream of many young Indians, to have a job that isn't working on the fields. Uh, you know, one of the candidates I saw um, who was seemed kind of uh, reprehensible was someone – it was a woman who had said that uh, uh, that Gandhi's assassin was a patriot. Yeah. And she won. Yeah. Uh, the, and Narendra Modi has said he, he can't quite forgive her, but um, – what, what kind of message is, is that? That is deeply troubling. If you're looking for who is the symbol of India, Mahatma Gandhi for, for decades was easily recognized by everyone as this symbol of tolerance, inclusiveness, being able to reconcile the interests of Muslims and Hindus together. Well, now the BJP or many members of the BJP are celebrating instead these far-right Hindu nationalist figures, including, as you say, Godze, the man who killed, who assassinated Mahatma Gandhi. So instead of Gandhi, we have figures such as Savarkar or the 
these figures on the right who celebrated violence, who celebrated attacking Pakistan, t- attacking Muslims. This is not the sort of ideology you want if you want a stable India for the next 10 or 20 years. And one of uh, Gandhi's grandsons was in Chicago recently. I had him on the show. You did an event with yeah. him. And he's quite outspoken about what the BJP is doing to his fa- family's uh, reputation and name and uh, kind of selectively using yeah. quotes and uh, managing to twist things. Yeah. And he's, they're quite upset about this. I can understand why he's upset. I think that if Gandhi were alive today, he'd be horrified at the sort of things that are being done. Uh, I, I think it's a worry for India. It's a worry for the stability of India. And and I think it's not in the self-interest of the people who are doing it, because in the long run, you don't want to go down the path of a majoritarian, uh, religiously obsessed country like Pakistan. You want to remain secular and believe in institutions and fair play. And that was what India was very good at in the past. And the worry is that in the future, it will lose that. What do other countries who are doing business with India um, do about all this? Because yeah, I, it was, I was reading and I re- was reminded that in 2005, the Bush administration uh, banned Narendra Modi from coming to the U.S. over the, his involvement in the violence in Gujarat. Yeah. And uh, he was <laughs> now the Barack Obama administration came in, welcomed him with open yeah. arms. And everybody thinks this is all okay. I think there is no choice. The rest of the world has to engage India, has to work with India and and keep on trading and investing and, and trying to bring India into the fold as much as possible as a fellow democracy, respect for free speech, the journalists and, and so on. Uh, India can't be shunned at this stage. After all, it has just had the world's biggest election. It's been fairly run. And I think there's no doubt that these many hundreds of millions of people did really vote for Narendra Modi. So it's a democracy. We can't just because we might not like the outcome, we can't shun India. But I think we have to encourage India to respect its institutions, keep having fair elections, keep having a free press as much as possible, and and try to encourage Modi to feel that it's valuable to keep good relations with other democracies. As someone who reported from there for an extended period, yeah. did, did they welcome you? Were you? Is it really nice to be there? And yes. did PR people really? I mean, the, the 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 government people help you out? I did. I had a wonderful time in India. I found it warm, welcoming, intellectually stimulating. Modi himself, I interviewed several times, was actually a very good person to talk to. I got the Modi hug more than once. Uh, this is a place that I would recommend going to. I loved India. I think it has a, a strong future if it's run carefully. And it's an it's a utterly charming place. I think it's a wonderful place and the, and the world should be in favour of India rising up and ending its poverty. I just worry that if it takes the wrong path, it could end up in a much darker place. A lot of people are looking at India now as a safer investment than China. It's almost like the the, uh, the golden apple has, is is now India's. Yeah. Is that a reality? Well, I, I wish it were the case. If if Modi were really serious now about economic reforms, such as labor reforms or doing much more about infrastructure, being much more open to trade and so on, then I think India has immense potential. As I mentioned, it's 1.3 billion people, very young people. Uh, many states are well run. If it could just solve some of its uh, technical infrastructure, uh, bureaucratic problems, it could grow as fast as China. I worry that Modi won't actually deliver fully on those economic reforms if you look at what he achieved last time around. Adam Roberts is the author of Superfast Primetime Ultimate Nation, The Relentless Invention of Modern India. He was the Economist Southeast Asia correspondent before coming here to the Midwest. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the surprising election results where the BJP extend their majority in the parliament. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you.
Coming up after the break, the incumbent victory wasn't a surprise in India, but in Australia, over the weekend, it was a shock. We'll unpack what happened in the Australian elections after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The conservative Liberal Party won another term in Australia over the weekend in spite of the fact that they'd been behind in 50 consecutive opinion polls. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison called it a miracle upset. With me is Rachel Withers. Her article in Slate is What the Bloody Hell Just Happened in Australia. Thanks a lot for joining us, Rachel Withers. Hi, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, the Labor Party, Liberal Party has been in power here for a couple of terms, and you describe them in your article as dysfunctional and unpopular. Can you explain where they were at exactly going into this election? So going into this election, um, the Liberal National Coalition, which, as you mentioned, sits on the right, they had lost over 50 consecutive opinion polls. We do a lot of opinion polling in Australia, um, and they were trailing in the preferred party polling for basically their entire last term. Um, and throughout the six years they've been in government, they've also been changing leaders quite a lot. Um, that's sort of become the norm in Australian politics at this point. Um, but they sort of switched from Tony Abbott, who was quite far right, who was elected in 2013. They switched to Malcolm Turnbull in 2015. And then last August, they switched to um, Scott Morrison, the current prime minister, who sits sort of more in the middle of the two. But they've been very divided, um, especially on on climate change, very dysfunctional um, and quite seemingly out of step with the electorate on things like climate change and marriage equality um, and so, yeah, it just it just seemed like an inevitability for the past three years that they were definitely going to lose this next election. All right. Well, what did they campaign on here if they, if, if they were, you know, in this kind of odd state where they were kind of, I don't know, I guess they, they seemed like they're more against stuff. Yeah. So they campaigned on very few things. Um it was the Labour Party, the opposition party, that really went in with a, a big policy agenda. Um, and the Liberal National Coalition basically campaigned against those things. So there was scare campaigns about um, some of the tax reforms that Labour was proposing. You know, they turned attempts to end particular tax concessions into new taxes. Um, they ran on, you know, the idea that, you know, we don't know what Labor's ambitious climate change policies are going to cost. Um, and they also ran specifically against the Labor Party leader, uh, Bill Shorten, who is quite unpopular in Australia. He's, he's sort of the Hillary Clinton of it all. He's not very well liked, uh, not very charismatic, um, but did have a very united, prepared team behind him. Um, but Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, very effectively positions the election as a battle between himself and Bill Shorten, even though that's not actually how Australian elections work. Um, you vote for the, the House members, not the leader, but he very much made it 
a race between Bill Shorten and myself. You know, that was his what he kept saying. Now, Bill Shorten and Labor, they 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 were making a lot of. Um, I heard complex policy proposals, and basically their bottom line was, we're going to remake Australia. Is, is that um, something that people in Australia wanted to do? Well, apparently not. <laughs> the Labor Party usually is the party that goes in with more of a reform agenda. They're the party that over the you know, last few decades have really pushed Australia forward in terms of things like healthcare. You know, they were the ones to introduce universal healthcare. Um, and so they're usually the ones that want to push Australia forward. Australians in general are quite um, conservative when it comes to change. They're very, you know, in favour of voting for the status quo. Um, and that's what the Liberal National Coalition generally offers. Um you can see how apathetic Australians can be about change in the in the very big fact that we've never bothered to actually separate ourselves from the British monarchy. We still have the Queen as our head of state. Um, we're pretty apathetic about things in general. Um, and that seems to be what this election has revealed for a lot of people, which is that even though we now know climate change is a big issue and Australians are now ranking it like one of our greatest threats, um, one of the most important issues facing us as a nation, people still kind of voted for the party that was offering to not really do anything at all. I'm talking with Rachel Withers about her article in Slate, What the Bloody Hell Just Happened in Australia. It was about the Australian elections over the weekend when the heavily favored uh, Labor Party lost to the Liberal Party, the conservative power that's been in power for a couple of years here, a couple of terms. And I wanted to say a few things about uh, climate change and the Australian election, because a lot of outside forces were looking at what was happening in Australia, and they saw that climate change was a big issue with voters, and it looked like they were going to vote for change and more action on climate change. What? Why, why didn't that happen? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question um, that I think people are still attempting to answer. I've heard it described as... Um, this was the climate change election and the climate lost the election. Um, basically, one of the key issues um, and one of the key regions was uh, the Adani coal mine, the coal mine which is being proposed in Queensland. Um, it's a big issue for Queensland voters, this coal mine um, that is supposedly going to bring jobs uh, to a, you know, a, a region that is struggling, um, depending whose numbers you read, it's 10,000 jobs or it's 1,000 jobs. Um, but that ended up being a really, really crucial issue for those voters. And those voters ended up being really crucial to the election result. Um, the Labor Party didn't actually have a strong stance on the mine because, I mean, they were probably wise to not have a strong stance on it because it is was such a hot button issue. But... Um, the Liberals managed to effectively paint Labor as opposed to the mine, as many um, environmental groups were. Um, and so a lot of voters in Queensland decided to to vote, with, vote for the Liberal Party because um, they believed that this mine was too important to lose. And Queensland is a, it's a little bit like Florida. It's a, a toss-up state where there's a, a lot of action. Yeah, um, it's it's like the South in a lot of ways. Um, 
it's like the Midwest in others because of the the mining issue. Um, they do currently have a Labor government there and no one's, you know, a lot of Queenslanders are actually quite defensive right now at being compared to the American South. Um, but it is certainly um, a place that has revealed some of the deep divisions in the country. Um, there was a massive swing against Labor in Queensland Whereas there was actually a swing towards Labor in my home state of Victoria, which is often considered like the progressive state, um, a lot of Liberal Party, uh, Liberal Party members in like wealthy urban seats had massive swings against them um, on the basis of the lack of policy when it comes to climate change. But Queensland went the other way, um, and it's really it's really highlighted some massive rural-urban divides in the country that I think many of us might have underestimated. Uh, that sounds familiar to the, what's going on in this country and a lot yes. of other places. Um, wh- how would you describe the rural-urban divide in Australia? Um, so it, similar to the US, I would say, um, in that a lot of, uh, of Labor's base vote is now coming from the inner city, suburban, you know, quote-unquote latte-sipping urbanites. Um, And the rural working-class regions are are voting for either the Liberal Party or parties further to the right. Um, This is quite a big issue for the Labor Party because they are the the trade union party and traditionally have represented working-class voters in Australia, and they've absolutely lost the working class at this point, um, which is something that, as Labor scrambles uh, over its leadership, because they're going to elect a new leader straight away, um, there a lot of the candidates for the Labor leadership are now saying, we need to get back in touch with the working class. We need to learn to speak to to rural people again, because we've lost we've lost touch with them. One of the interesting things about the election was uh, the former prime minister uh, from the Liberal Party, Tony Abbott, um, the far right kind of guy uh, who lost his premiership in infighting. Uh, he lost his seat altogether and he lost it largely on climate change. But he, his district, um, it's a wealthy district and it seems like climate change plays differently in, in the wealthy and the low income areas of Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's been a lot of schadenfreude over Tony Abbott's loss. Um, it's probably like the one silver lining for the left in this election. But he actually lost to um, an independent. He lost his wealthy Sydney seat to an independent who was offering to to act much like a much like a conservative in many ways, except on climate change. And people in that electorate came out and voted for her. Um, there was also swings in similar seats, um, similar like strongly held conservative seats in around Melbourne um, that went massively towards the Greens and the Labor candidates. Um, but it was only actually in Sydney, in Tony Abbott's seat, where they actually managed to knock off the conservative. And that might have had a little bit to do with his personality and him being particularly divisive on the issue. Like He, he made a bet with a constituent during the election that climate change wasn't real. Um, and so that's the only place where this um, wealthy 
urban swing towards more environmental policies actually occurred. And arguably it's the one where it had the least impact for the major party trying to form government. I think for people uh, on the outside looking in at Australia's election there and trying to draw some lessons from it, they might say, well, climate change is not a good issue to run on. Uh, another lesson would be um, the the right um, always seems to, to to find a way to kind of other progress. And uh, it's it, are, are there lessons you think that we should take away from the Australian election? Yeah, um, I think that there's like some some key similarities and some key differences um, between our electoral system and and the US and the upset that you guys had a few years ago. Um, but I do think that there's clearly uh, an urban-rural divide that is not going away uh, in either place. It's easy to forget about it, you know, when there's another election coming up and there's a lot of hope for the left. Um, I've seen a lot of people now sharing my article about the Australian election, uh, a lot of Americans, and saying, look what can happen. Let's not forget that even if things look uh, like definite, the polls can be wrong. Um, and don't underestimate, you know, the, the rural vote that it seems like if you're, if you're trying to sell climate change to a rural low income voter, you've got to make, make it something that seems like a positive for them rather than something that seems like it's going to cost them money. Yeah, and that's probably where the Labour Party failed. Um, overall, their policies were going to be more, uh, they were going to serve lower income people, but it's hard to see that when, you know, the Conservatives are running on the jobs that the mine is going to bring and the cost of, of electricity. Um, people are worried about their day-to-day lives um, and it's hard for them to see the overall benefit of getting on top of climate change and getting in front in the sort of renewable energy race. Rachel Withers is the author of the article, What the Bloody Hell Just Happened in Australia. It's in Slate, and it talks about what happened in the election over the weekend with the Liberal Party winning another term in Australia. Thanks a lot for joining us, Rachel, and talking about the surprise results in Australia. No worries. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Taiwan becoming the first country in Asia to approve same-sex marriage. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Earlier this month, Taiwan's legislature approved Asia's first same-sex marriage law. The, le- the legal journey was unique and not without hiccups, and the whole process is a lesson on how queerness resonates differently in Asia. 
Amy Brainer is an assistant professor of women's and gender studies at, uh, and sociology at the University of Michigan Dearborn, and she conducts research on queer and transgender family issues in Taiwan and is writing a book based on her research on families in Taiwan. Thanks a lot for joining us to talk about this, Amy Brainer. Thank you for having me. I'm sure a lot of listeners are kind of scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute, in Asia there is not one country that has approved same-sex marriage so far? What, what happened there? How, did, what, uh, how do you explain the whole region, not, um, not one country adopting this yet? Um, well, I think it's important to keep in mind that marriage equality is just one part of um, a much larger and broader set of issues that are relevant to queer and trans people. Um, so while it's true that um, Taiwan is a first in this particular area, there is certainly a long histories, legacies of queer and trans activism throughout Asia, including in Taiwan. So um, that includes, for example, queer activism around institutions like education, healthcare, law enforcement, immigration, and others. Um, so we can celebrate this historic moment, and it's a joyous moment for many people, um, but without reducing the question of LGBT rights to this single issue or single struggle. Can you explain a little about how Taiwan uh, got to this point? Because it sounds like there, there was a push from uh, the LGBTQ community, yep. and that resulted in legal battles that kind of wormed their way uh, up. Yes, that's right. Um, so I'll start. Um, in May 2017, Taiwan's highest court um, ruled that the ban on same-sex unions violates two constitutional principles, um, the people's freedom of marriage and the people's right to equality. And the court gave the legislature two years to amend or enact laws in accordance with its ruling. Now, notice I said same-sex unions. The court did not stipulate whether this should be marriage or something else, like civil partnership. So they passed that um, to the legislative arm. Now, um, within that two-year period, in February 2018, as part of a midterm election cycle, Taiwanese voters passed three referendums opposing same-sex marriage and LGBT-inclusive education. And at the same time, they rejected two counter-referendums supporting these rights. Um, now, importantly, these did not undo the constitutional court ruling. Officials have leeway in how to respond to referendums. So the ruling stood, but the referendums did send a loud message to lawmakers and to LGBT people and their families. Well, how did you? How should people view the, I, you know, popular support for yeah. same-sex marriage if if they've got these referendums and they were negative? Yes. Um, so it's really important to know that the referendums did not emerge spontaneously in Taiwanese society. Um, they were the result of a coordinated political campaign. 
Um, and so before I go on and say more, I do want to direct listeners who are interested in digging deeper um, to work by another scholar, um, Professor Ying Chao Gao. He's at Virginia Commonwealth University and his research is on anti-LGBT activism in Taiwan. So I'm going to give just a very small teaser for this work. Um, Anti-LGBT groups in Taiwan are highly organized and transnationally networked. So conservative religious organizations in North America, for example, have helped to fund and support the anti-LGBT efforts in Taiwan. Ah. Um, and these include uh, misinformation campaigns linking same-sex marriage to the spread of HIV, low birth rate, which is a big concern in Taiwan, and a host of social problems. Um, and so... This kind of misinformation campaign has reverberation through the society. Um, and I can, maybe my research can kind of speak at that point, because my work is um, less on the political side and more in the family context. Um, oh, and I want to add, the book is out. <laughs> oh, I'm excited to share. Yeah, Queer Kinship and Family Change in Taiwan, if folks are interested in that aspect. So in that work, I spent a lot of time talking to families, to parents of queer and transgender children and other family members, and misinformation campaigns surely have an impact on them. Um, they're already struggling with what it means to have an LGBT child, and now here they are being presented with inflammatory and false claims that make them fearful for their own kids. Um, so the work of easing these fears and educating parents and families and the public remains very important. Um, well, a couple, well, you know, oh, does the, do the criticisms that come in, the, 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 I mean, these uh, critiques that are confusing mm -hmm. about HIV and low birth rates and all this, they're, they're kind of from... Uh, a more religious background in the U.S., the kind of uh, yes. typical U.S. anti-LGBTQ yes. rights people that we see that come from That's a right. religious background. Does that resonate the same way in Taiwan? Well, interestingly, Christians make up um, approximately 5% of the population in Taiwan. Um, and I do want to do a little caveat here and say there are also LGBT-affirming Christians in Taiwan and queer Christians in Taiwan. Um, so I don't want to paint, you know, Christians with, with a broad brush here. Um, but in terms of this particular discourse coming from conservative Christianity, um, Christian groups in Taiwan have been very savvy in terms of linking their particular objections to other kinds of objections that would resonate um, in Taiwan, anxiety about the birth rate and HIV, um, social disorder, and also have made the claim at various points along the way that this um, sort of goes against um, traditional uh, Chinese value systems. Um, and that is a point that um, the scholar who I cited a moment ago, Gao, he also talks about that um, with regard to kind of Taiwan's national identity um, and how these appeals to sort of traditional Chinese culture actually align the anti-LGBT groups with a slightly more pro-China position um, rather than an a, a more ind Taiwan independence position. So that's certainly um, an aspect going on. The other thing I just want to throw in um, is that uh, these referendums uh, sometimes contradicted uh, survey data 
And sometimes survey data seemed to be kind of all over the place in terms of how supportive people were. And part of the reason for that is the specific term marriage. So a lot of people were supportive of partnership or some kind of um, protection for same-sex couples, but they did not want same-sex couples to have access specifically to marriage. So it's not that the Taiwanese um, people who supported the anti-LGBT referendums necessarily were saying they didn't think same-sex couples should have any rights for their relationships. They were focusing specifically on amending the civil code to change the definition of marriage. I'm talking with Amy Brainer. She is with the University of Michigan Dearborn and the author of Queer Kinship and Family Change in Taiwan. And we're talking about Taiwan's uh, legislature approving uh, Asia's first first uh, same-sex marriage law earlier this month. Um, so, when, so there we were with the referendums uh, muddying the waters, but the legislature went ahead and and yes. did this thing, and they they had a choice of several bills to choose from, and they chose the one with marriage on it, in spite of the fact that partnership looked like a better bet. Yes, <laughs> and um, I'm afraid that. My research can't answer for you why they made that decision. I think there are people who kind of study political parties and calculations in Taiwan who could maybe speak to that more. Um, but I will say um, that this particular law, um, activists are very pleased with the selection of this law out of the three, right? Because this is the one that does... Um, use this term marriage, uh, but the new law is not perfect, right? I mean, as um, it would be hard to imagine a law that could achieve that out of the gate, but there are some limits to this new law as well. So same-sex couples under this law can only adopt a child that is biologically related to one of the spouses. Um, there's a limit for binational couples. Uh, Taiwanese citizens can marry a non-Taiwanese person of the same sex only if that person is a citizen of a country where same-sex marriage is also legal. Hmm. So these are surely areas that LGBT activists will challenge in the future. They will continue working on this. Um, the other thing is that, of course, there are limits of marriage itself to bring about real equality. So there are feminist and queer critiques of marriage as an institution in Taiwan, um, recognizing that this institution perpetuates different forms of inequality. So, for example, families still allocate work and resources and assets in ways that privilege men. Um, and in my own research, I found that this created real obstacles for queer women. Same-sex marriage will not necessarily mean that women have access to the same kinds of family capital that men do, or that unmarried people will be protected. So to achieve true family equality, we do need more than marriage. And again, we can celebrate this achievement without idealizing it um, or closing our eyes to the critiques that queer people are also raising. I wanted to talk a little more specifically about your research within families. And yes. what is it, if you were to tell um, a typical Taiwanese family, uh, here is your daughter is going to get married to another woman, uh, isn't that great? What, what would yeah. the reaction be? 
um, well, I'll kind of I'll, I'll let my informants maybe um, answer through me. I'll try to do them justice. So when I was collecting my data, um, this was before the um, this was a reality, but it was on some people's radar. And as I was talking to people about their family relationships, um, even if someone hoped or planned to get married to a same-sex partner, they did not necessarily anticipate that their parents or grandparents um, or other kin would understand what that meant or that that would necessarily make them more supportive. Most anticipated that they would be confused (laughs) and they would need some help to understand And part of the reason for that is that marriage is a gendered institution, right? It's not just, there's not just a legal definition of marriage. There's a social definition. There's a patrilineal definition. So if you are a son or a son-in-law, that's really different than being a daughter or a daughter-in-law who enters another family and carries on her husband's bloodline for instance. So when you come to parents and say, I have a spouse, but it's a son-in-law, not a daughter-in-law or vice versa, right? All of these sort of roles and responsibilities are then in flux, not just the relationship between the couple, but the whole family system sort of reverberates with this. Um, And so people um, did not think that marriage would be, you know, sort of an automatic... um, when in within their family of origin in terms of saying, look, our relationship is now, you know, recognized by the government, um, is now valid, they felt like this is going to take some explanation. And it's going to take us sort of chipping away um, at some of these other aspects of marriage, the deeply gendered aspects and the other ways that marriage organizes society, oftentimes, um, inequitably. Now, it now, property is inherited largely by males in Taiwan? Yes. Um, now, importantly, and, and maybe very relevant to the conversation we are having about this, um, it's not legally required to be that way. So feminists did a lot of work to um, make the institution of marriage fairer for women, including legal gains. So in fact, when we talk about marriage equality, we need to remember, you know, we tend to think of this term marriage equality solely through the lens of same-sex marriage, but there have been lots of struggles for marriage equality, right, around the world that have to do with other issues, class, race, gender, right? So feminists have done a lot of work to try to make marriage fairer, um, but it's not only the legal aspect. Right? right. So even though um, women and men have sort of a legal parity with regard to, say, inheritance rights, families are still more likely to give a greater inheritance to sons. Daughters are more likely to cede their inheritance to their brothers than vice versa. So many of these practices persist even after legal change occurs. So that's another important reminder that a legal change is a step. It's one we can celebrate. It's um it's important, but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the social right. structure Amy has Brainer, been transformed. Amy Brainer is the author of Queer Kinship and Family Change in Taiwan. Thanks for talking with us about Taiwan's legislature approving Asia's first same-sex marriage law. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about how the Middle East thinks Hollywood TV content is actually good for morality. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.